Traders Point, how are we doing? Hey, so good to be with you. Today is a big day in the life of my family. I want to get everyone in on this to celebrate, okay? Today is my wife's birthday. So just want to take a moment and say happy birthday. I love you. She's right there. She loves it so much. Uh, but seriously, your love has shaped me into the man that I am. So forever grateful for you. I love you. All right. Now let's take a really strong right turn. Um, <laughs> men's night, all the men in the room at all of our campuses, all right? This night is for you. Mark your calendars, Friday, October 28th. Men from all over our city are going to get together in this room here at Northwest to look at who has God called us to be uniquely men, all right? So I'm calling you out, all the men. If you got a brother, cousin, father, we want them here, all right? You guys with us on that? Registration is open today, so don't, don't waste any time, all right? Don't miss out on this. But as far as today goes, we are continuing in our series, Among Lions. Among Lions, studying through the book of Daniel. And here's been the big idea that we've been looking at through this whole series is what does it look like to live faithfully to God in a godless culture? How do we show up time in and time again going against the grain, right? What does that look like? And Daniel's life has been a perfect example of that. Well, for chapters one through six it was, right? And then I made the joke last week. I said, I got chapter seven. And chapter seven was all about the end times. And I made some jokes, you know, like uh, before that week, wondering what week would I get? Would I get, you know, the furnace? Would I get the lion's den? No, I got the, the end times. But clearly, uh, our lead pastor didn't just give me chapter seven and the end times. I'm back again. He also gave me chapter eight, all right, which is the end times part two. So you guys ready to run it back? All right. Same rule still applies, all right? Don't get weird, all right? What we're going to be looking at in chapter 8 is once again this prophecy about the end times, apocalyptic literature. But this is more about who than it is about when, because a lot of times we start talking about the end times, our minds go to, okay, when is it going to happen? You won't get those answers here, but you will see who is in control of it all. And for us to take our rightful place in this, we are not detectives, right? We have not been called to solve a case when we look at biblical prophecy. We are sons and daughters receiving a letter from our father. Let's treat it as such, okay? Y'all with us on that? All right. With all that to be said, let's go ahead and just dive right in. Daniel chapter 8, starting in verse 1. It says, During the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, saw another vision following the one I had already appeared to me. In this vision, I was at the fortress of Susa in the providence of Elam, standing outside the Ulai River. As I looked up, I saw a ram with two long horns standing beside the river. One of the horns was longer than the other, even though it had grown later than the other one. And the ram butted everything out of his way to the west 
to the north and to the south. And no one could stand against him or help his victims. He did as he pleased and became very great. Now, while I watched, while I was watching, suddenly a male goat appeared from the west, crossing the land so swiftly that he didn't even touch the ground. Now, I want to pause right there because this usually doesn't happen to me. Like when I'm reading prophecy and like the Lord speaks to me and I can make sense of what he is saying. But as I was reading that, like not so much but with the ram, but with the goat. There was this goat that would come from the west and then he would move so swiftly, he would glide to not even touch the ground as he moved. I was like, I know this one. I, I have seen this one over and over again. Like I know this vision. <laughs> right? Like this is the goat. I was maybe a little premature on that one. Okay, it may not be Michael Jordan. It may be a different goat, all right? So let's keep reading. He's still the goat, though. <laughs> this goat, which had one very large horn between its eyes, see, not MJ, <laughs> headed toward the two-horned ram that I had seen standing beside the river, rushing at him in a rage. And the goat charged furiously at the ram and struck him, breaking off both his horns. Now, the ram was helpless, and the goat knocked him down and trampled him. No one could rescue the ram from the goat's power. I mean, I think you guys get it, right? You know, goats, rams. Uh, so, if, but as you read that, if you're like, you know what, I, I I, now that you say it, I don't think I get it completely. Uh, I think I might need a little bit of help here. Uh, you are not alone. Daniel is the one given this dream, this vision, and he can't make sense of it. And as he's standing there with these rams and these goats and this fight, everything that's going on, he's trying to piece it together. And this voice calls out and says, explain the vision to Daniel. So then uh, the angel Gabriel comes up to drop some knowledge, to explain to him what he's seeing here. And you might know that name, Gabriel. Same Gabriel. Maybe you know his work with the birth of John the Baptist or maybe what he's most famously known for with the birth of Jesus, right? Same, same old Gabe coming in to drop some knowledge on what's going on. So take a look at this. It says, then he said, I am here to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath. What you have seen pertains to the very end of time. The two-horned ram represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy male goat represents the king of Greece, not Michael Jordan. And the large horn between his eyes represents the first king of the Greek empire. The four prominent horns that replace the one large horn show that the Greek empire will break into four kingdoms but none as great as the first, okay? I know this is a lot to keep up with. We're gonna read one more piece of scripture to tie this whole thing together, and then I have a beautiful flow chart of shorts to keep track of all the characters, all right? So one more piece here. It says, the goat became very powerful, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off, and in the large horn's place grew four prominent horns, pointing in the four directions of the earth. Then from one of the prominent horns came a small horn. This is the one. 
whose power grew very great. It extended toward the south and the east and toward the glorious land of Israel. All right? So I know, once again, we have a lot of going on here. Not only rams and goats, but then goats and horns and broken horns and new horns coming out from where the old horns once were. Um, So I put it all into a chart for us to be able to work through what is actually going on here. How can we make sense of this? So if you remember from the vision, Daniel looks out and he sees this ram. And this is a bad ram. He is knocking everybody out taking no prisoners. And what it says is that this ram represents the kings of Media and Persia. And if you remember in the description, it says that this ram has two horns and the second horn, even though it shows up later, actually grows to be bigger than the first. This uh, shows that the Persian empire would come later, but it would actually grow to be much bigger than the Medo-Persian empire. So the next one is the goat. And this goat is the king of Greece. Uh, And it says that it will have this large horn, this this first king, which is known as Alexander the Great. And if you've studied history, you know this guy went on a wild ride. He conquers pretty much most of the known world in 10 years, gliding across this thing. But then we see that this horn breaks. And Alexander the Great, he, he dies pretty tragically at a young age, young early 30s, he passes away. And when this broken horn um, falls, we see that four horns come next. And these four horns represent four generals. Uh, King Alexander didn't have an heir to pass this to, so it all gets split, divvied up between these four generals. And then from these four generals, this is a new piece that we didn't get from last week, is this small horn that will come next. And what I want us to spend a little bit of time here is focusing on that small horn and why many believe that uh, this is Antiochus Epiphanes. Why many people believe that this small horn would be Antiochus Epiphanes. So who was Antiochus? He was something, okay? So uh, this is a picture of Antiochus on a form of currency. It was his form of currency that he decided to put his own face on, as you do. That's, if you want to know if somebody's crazy, that's, that's part one, right? He was a mad man. Um, he's been given the title of the Hitler of the Old Testament. As he approached Jerusalem, as walking in, it's said to, that he killed over 80,000 Jews just upon arrival. And it's kind of eerie, his story and this prophecy, how linked together that they really are. So I just want to read one piece of of the prophecy, and we'll see why many people believe that this is who they're talking about. So take a look at this. It says, it, talking about that small horn, uh, Antiochus, it even challenged the commander of heaven's army by canceling the daily sacrifices offered to him and by destroying his temple. The army of heaven was restrained from responding to this rebellion. So the daily sacrifice was halted and truth was overthrown. The horn succeeded in everything it did. So if you look back at at Jewish history, we see that a, a lot of this actually happened under Antiochus. So he actually shows up on the scene. And you got to know this about him. He was passionate. 
His life's mission was to take Greek culture, the Greek gods, and to make it the only culture. It wasn't just enough to win or to conquer. He wanted Greek culture to be the only culture. So when he steps into Jerusalem, and then he goes directly to the temple, and he makes a mess of it. He dismantles it. He does the unthinkable, the most disrespectful thing that you could possibly do. He brings in a pig. And if you know anything about Jewish culture and pigs, they do not go together ever. And what he does is he brings a pig into the altar inside the temple and he slaughters it. And pig blood is everywhere. And the cherry on top of this whole situation is he brings in a statue of Zeus and places it inside of God's holy temple. And it says that the sacrifices had to be halted, the temple had to be shut down as they tried to figure out a way to combat this guy. But the Jewish people would not go down without a fight. Uh, the backstory here, all of this that's happening, the temple, this is the backstory for a very still well-known holiday today called Hanukkah. And what would happen later is that these Jews would revolt against Antiochus and his people, and they would actually hold their ground. They would be able to take the temple back and rededicate it to God. It is a powerful story. And you can learn more about this in the Apocrypha. Maybe you've heard that word. Uh, it's the little small piece of, in a lot of Catholic Bibles between the Old Testament and the New. It's not scripture per se, but it's a lot of really good history to help us make sense of what was going on between the Old Testament and the New. Um, if you're looking for another resource, if you've seen the one with the holiday armadillo, the Friends episode, uh, he does a great job of breaking down this whole thing too. So you pick your poison as to what you would like to learn from. That's him right there. Learn about the Maccabees and the Jewish holidays. Um, but the wild thing here is when you look at that scripture and then you look at the life of Antiochus and you see how it matches up from the, from the events that would take place, the temple being shut down, like everything matches up. It matches up so well that it makes many people believe that Daniel couldn't have been written when it was. Because Daniel was written 200 years before all of this would happen. And the only rationale that people have for believing that Daniel didn't write this when he did is because it's too good. It's too accurate. And I don't know about you, but to me that just sounds like God at work. That a heavenly father being able to point out and to give us with some clarity of knowing, hey, times are coming and it's going to be really, really hard and difficult. But I want you to know that even when you see these things, you can know that I am above it all. And I just want to read one more piece of scripture that's going to tie this all together. And then we'll begin to kind of work our way into the application of what does all this mean for me and you this week. So look at this one more piece of scripture. It says, at the end of their rule, when their sin is at its height, a fierce king, a master of intrigue, will rise to power. And he will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause a shocking amount of deconstruction, of destruction, and succeed in everything that he does. He will destroy powerful leaders and devastate the holy people. He will be a master of deception and he will become arrogant. He will destroy many without warning, and he will take on the prince of princes in battle, 
but he will be broken, though not by human power. So I want us to hold on to to these two big things that we see here. It says he became strong, but not by his own power. It was more more than that. And then it says, ultimately, when he was broken, it was not by human power. You see, what's happening here in these events and events all throughout history is that there's more going on behind the scenes. This is not just man-made kingdoms rising and falling, but there's actually a, a spirit behind it all. And if you've been with us, we've talked about it as the spirit of Babylon. Obviously, the empire of Babylon has fallen and it's, it's done with, but the spirit of Babylon, it's, it shows up in Genesis and it shows up all the way in Revelation, it is one that does not end until the very, very end. And this is why in the New Testament it says, hey, be reminded that our battle is not against flesh and blood. That you're gonna, peep, you're gonna see some people do some things, some hurtful things, some crazy things, but I need you to know that there's more to that than what you see. That there is the spirit of Babylon And what this spirit of Babylon, this beast that we've seen from chapter 7 and chapter 8, when this beast in its ultimate form is the Antichrist, right? The the Antichrist. And the the thing about the Antichrist is that the prophecies of the Antichrist are already and not yet, right? They're already and not yet. So what we've been reading about, when when we look at Scripture and we see this prophecy and we see it line up with this guy, we're like, man, that makes makes a ton of sense. It looks like that that prophecy has been fulfilled. But we've talked about that, you know, a lot of times with biblical prophecy, there's a near fulfillment and then there's a long-term fulfillment. So there is this near fulfillment of Antiochus, but there's also going to be this one at the very end of time. All right. But just to circle back and to see how, once again, how spot on these things are, when you look at Antiochus and how he is this smaller version that would foreshadow an ultimate Antichrist, because that's exactly what he was, a a false version, an Antichrist. That that coin that I showed earlier, that picture of his face on the front of it, if you flip it over, he had this inscription written, because it wasn't enough just to have his face. He had this inscription that said, King Antiochus, God in the flesh. God's representative on earth. This is how this man would introduce himself. Hi, I am God's representative. I am God manifest here on earth. And many believed because of how he ruled, because of how he was able to continue conquering, how his empire grew. Many people thought maybe there's something to this. Maybe this guy really is one of the gods. Maybe we really should believe in him over anything else. But we have the privilege of living when we do, and we know that this guy was just crazy, that he was an anti-Christ, that he was not the real thing. But when you place that into perspective and you see that, man, that messaging was eerily similar to what Jesus would come and say, that Jesus would say that he actually is God in the flesh, that he is God manifested around and with us. But the difference is he was actually the real thing and this was just a false version. And we see this conversation, it continues to go. 
that we live with this antichrist, these fulfillments that are already but, but not quite yet. Because look at it in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. He says, dear children, the last hour is here, and you have heard the antichrist is coming. And already many such antichrists have appeared. You see, in the end, there will be one like this guy, but so much worse. He will do the same things, but just on a much larger scale. And he will affect and deceive even more people. And what the Bible tells us, unfortunately, is this beast will just get bigger and bigger and bigger until we see its final form. And maybe what some of you are wrestling with, with this idea, and maybe it's a stumbling block for you, and it always has been of like, okay, if God is aware of evil, if God can see it, if God can prophesy about it, then why doesn't God just remove the evil? Why doesn't God just cut it out at its root? I think the short answer would be that if he were to cut out evil, he would have to cut out me and you as well. And to God, it seems like that's not a deal he's worth taking. So instead, what he's saying is, no, I'm big enough, strong enough, powerful enough that I can orchestrate all of this in a way that I'm not going to remove it but I can redeem every single thing, that I can work all things together for the good of those who love me, that behind the scenes, it doesn't matter how big this beast gets, I can provide hope and a future no matter what. It reminds me of like, um, like a good chef, uh, if you will. I'm not a good chef, okay? Um, no surprise, I don't think. You guys are like, oh, man, that's a bummer. Uh, but I do make a few things. Uh, as a typical dad, I make breakfast, and out of that breakfast, I really make one or two things. Um, but French toast is something that I make. And if you had my French toast, you'd be like, wow, that's, that's actually pretty good French toast. But it's not because I'm a great chef. What I have found is a big part of it is buying really nice ingredients, right? With French toast, for example... What makes all the difference is spending a little bit of extra money on really good bread. You got really good bread, it makes French toast really, really easy. That's not hard to do. That's not a good chef. What I love are these shows where they show up to these master chefs and they're like, hey, chef, today your challenge is to make a masterpiece out of this box, okay? And what's in the box? Oh, well, there's some anchovies, uh, some spoiled mushrooms, uh, pickle juice, and uh, what... Uh, liver and some duck eggs, all right? You got 45 minutes and go. And in 45 minutes, they're able to take all of this stuff that doesn't look like it, it could ever connect, and then they present this thing that is unbelievable. I believe that's a picture of what God is able to do with you and me. That even in this world that looks dark, it looks like all these things, there's no way they could connect. There's no way that it could be nutritious or even helpful. But God is saying, no, 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 watch this. And he pulls it all together. And this is the story of humanity. And it is kind of scary and dark to think about that. That this antichrist, whose whole goal is to bring hell on earth. That's his goal. That's his mission. Before Jesus gets a chance to bring heaven on earth. 
And the bad news is that this prophecy has come and will come and will continue to come, that it will get darker. But that's not the only prophecy. All right, so take a look at this as well. The prophecies about the Christ are already and not yet fulfilled. The position of favor that me and you get to sit in is we already know how when the Christ came, the true one, God in the flesh, and he went against these principalities, these evil spirits, he won. And it wasn't even close. That he came, that he lived the perfect life, that he defeated sin and death. It wasn't even close. And now we get to stand with him in ultimate victory. But once again, it's in the already, but the not yet. So we live and we stand in the victory of Christ, but we also live and stand in the prophecy of the Antichrist. So how do we do this? How do we live in the already and the not yet? How do we live and not be just completely overwhelmed by the darkness and just become victims to everything that's going on around us? But how do we truly live in these last days? That's what we're going to finish out our time with today. And we're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 3. And what I love about using 2 Peter here is that the context is the same. We don't have to pretend like what we're learning about in Daniel and then apply it to here in 2 Peter. 2 Peter is continuing the conversation about the Antichrist, about the end of times. And because it's coming, he has these very specific things that me and you should be doing, how we should live, okay? So here it is, 2 Peter chapter 3. And I don't have time to work through the whole chapter. We're just going to grab a few lines and interact with them. But I would just encourage you, read the whole book this week. It's one that you can sit down in one setting and read and it has so much knowledge for me and you. So take a look at this. Second Peter. He says, this is my second letter to you, dear friends. And in both of them, I have tried to stimulate your wholesome thinking and refresh your memory. I want you to remember what the holy prophet said long ago and what our Lord and Savior commanded through your apostles. So I want us to pause right there. And he used some language here. Wholesome. He said, I want you to stimulate wholesome. I, I want to write in such a way to remind you that would it stimulate wholesome thinking within you. And so I just want to ask you, what are you doing to stimulate wholesome thinking? It's really hard. Everything majority of what you are going to interact with on a daily basis is not going to stimulate wholesome thinking. When you open up social media, whether it's Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, the new one that I don't even know about yet, but I'm sure somebody's going to tell me. As you scroll, are you thinking, wow, I feel so much better. This is wholesome content right here. This is good. Even our shows. Like I grew up in the era of like, you know, TGIF, the sitcom era, Family Matters, Full House. It was wholesome. They even told you how wholesome it was. At the end of the episode, there was always a moral. The music would shift. The dad would put his arm around their shoulder and say, hey, listen here. Here's the takeaway for today for you to live a good and prosperous life. We don't have those shows anymore. A lot of the content we take in, it is not going to stimulate wholesome thinking. But we can't just leave it at that. 
We can't just like, oh, if there's nothing to take in, then, then I guess I just won't have anything. We have to create it. We have to be creators of wholesome content. And you know what I mean? I think we know when we see something that is wholesome, something that is pure, something that is completely that someone does for the other person. And I don't care how tough you are, when you see it, it almost makes you want to tear up. And you're like, that's the way it should be. And I'm telling you, to create those moments if you can't scroll to find them. If they're not going to be on Netflix, then we need to create them ourselves. And this is why it's so important to be in community. Because you maybe have one or two or three of these interactions throughout the week. These moments of wholesome things that happen that stimulate your thinking. But then you sit down with another group. And instead of being bombarded by all the problems and all, all the struggles... There's that, but then you also hear some stories that just stimulate your mind into thinking, yeah, I want to live for God. I want to be a light to this darkness. What are you doing to stimulate wholesome thinking? And the second one is is this. What are you doing to refresh your memory on who God is, who he says you are, and his plan for your life? So here's why this is important. It's why Peter mentions it when he's talking about the end days of how the culture and how all the conversations around you are going to shift and move you in different directions. So that's why we have to be prepared to remember, to refresh our minds on who God says we are. Because I promise you, when you leave here, on your way home, there might be someone in another car that tries to communicate to you who he thinks you are. (laughs) And it's not the best version of you. When you go to work or you go to school this week, there are going to be a group of people or an individual that is going to communicate to you who they think you are. And unless you're refreshing and remembering who God says you are, you will accept an identity that is so beneath you, it's laughable. That's why it's so important that we open God's word. And before we make a move, we say, God, who do you say I am? And God will say, oh, You're the one that I'm willing to move heaven and earth for. You're the one that I'll go against beast for. You're the one that I would send my only son for. You're the one that I'm creating in my own image. That's who you are. You are a son. You are a daughter. And then I think about all that he has. And you want to talk about purpose and calling. Without a purpose and calling from God, we will accept a purpose and calling from people who may even mean well, but they have no business placing a purpose or a calling on our lives because the purpose has already been given to us by God, from God. That is our mission here on earth, okay? So what are you doing to stimulate wholesome thinking and what are you doing to remember who God says you are, his purpose and calling for your life? The second thing I want to point out is this. In 2 Peter it says, but the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. And I just want to completely put that out there. Um, I don't know if you've ever been robbed before. Um, I have, okay. And uh, they don't tell you they're about to do it. They don't send a memo. They don't like, hey, in advance, we're going to be breaking in. Hey, we're going to be holding you up at gunpoint just so you're ready, right? No, when a thief comes, they come in the middle of the night. They come quietly. And unless you're prepared, unless you've set up a foundation, they are going to take everything that you have. And he says, in in the same way, that when I come, you better be prepared. Because I'm going to come like a thief in the night. 
And the time to be prepared for a thief when they come is not in the moment. It's before. He says, so be prepared. You are living, if you needed this reminder, you are living in the last days. Whether they're the last days on earth, but they're definitely your days. Be mindful of that. And then take a look at this. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives should you live? Looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. I'm telling you, as I've been studying Daniel 7 and chapter 8 over the past couple weeks, I think that verse has probably hit me harder than any other verse. He says, are you, are you looking in these last days, are you looking ahead do you want God's kingdom more than anything else? And then it was this line, and to hurry it along. And I never put myself in that place, that I've been called here to hurry it along. That there's actually a way that me and you can live to hurry along the kingdom of God. So I just want to ask you, are you living a life that is hurrying along the kingdom of God? I like this, I like this phrasing because it's on the, like, on the offensive. We're, we're, we're taking ground, we're moving. Because I feel like so much of what Christianity has been reduced to is that we get saved by this amazing God from our sin and we're very aware of the sin that God has saved us from. But instead of going out and hurrying up his kingdom, we feel like we have been called and promoted to like sin management. Like that is what our life is, has been reduced to, that now that we've been saved and now we just need to make sure that we don't fall back into sin again. So then we just circle around all of the sin of our lives like, nope, I'm not going to touch it. I'm not going to touch it. No, I, no, 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 no. And then we become sin managers for everyone else too. Like, hey, you over there, I see you in the corner. Don't do that. And then we walk this really thin tightrope of not trying to sin. That's what our mind is. Don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, sin, don't sin, don't sin. Who wants to live a life like that? That's not the life that Jesus has called us to. When you look at the language that is given to us to hurry along the kingdom of God, we get language like go, make, change. Rescue. It says to snatch people from the fire. Like this is the life that we have been called to. One that is on the offensive. One that is hurrying along the kingdom of God. The family business that we have been invited to by God our Father is not sin management. It's freedom. It's to go out and to find those that are lost, going out and to find those that are being devoured by this antichrist, by this evil spirit. And to say, no, 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 you need to know that there's a God that loves you. Come with me. Let's hurry this thing along. And then we bring them to Jesus. Their lives are transformed. They are given the very spirit of God. And then you go. That's what Jesus is called was go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what? Know this. Everywhere you go, I will be with you. Isn't that a better life? That's the life that I would sign up for. That's the Christianity that I want. And that's the life that Jesus has called us to. I love the way that the message translates this, this verse. 
It says the galaxies will burn up and the elements melt down that day. But we'll hardly notice. We'll be looking the other way, ready for the promised new heavens and the promised new earth, all landscaped with righteousness. That's what I want to be looking at. I don't want to be looking out, oh, woe is me. Look how dark this is. Look how scary that is. Did that move? There we go. You already know these things, dear friends, so be on your guard. Then the day you will not be carried away by the heirs of these wicked people and lose your own secure footing. Rather, you must grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I love this picture of what our lives are supposed to be like, like what we're focused on, what we see, what we know to be true, the wholesome, holy, good things of God, that that's what fills our mind. That's what we're focused on. Not just managing sin, but we're living so much in the other direction. We're not even close or worried about falling back into temptation or sin. We're too busy being on mission. That even when all the world is exploding and all this is happening around us, you just get this picture of this group of people like, no, no, I see this. This is all that I'm focused on. I'm ready for this day. I love the way there was this old pastor that talked about it. He said, I want to live in such a way that it takes me a little bit of time to know that I've died. Think about that. He said, I want to live in such a way that my mind is so concentrated and focused on the things of God that I've already begun to see his kingdom come, that when I die, it takes me a minute to tell the difference between the heaven that God has given me and the heaven that I just stepped into. What a life. Come on. And I love that last verse there that said to commit. Commit to growing in the knowledge and the grace of our Lord. And so I want to ask you, what commitment can you make to growing in grace and knowledge? This is the call on our lives. Then when we look at the end days and the already but the not yet, Peter says, hey, I want you to commit to growing in grace and knowledge. And to me, I think we're better at growing in knowledge, right? To show up at church, to, to hear some things about who God is, to learn some head knowledge. That's the way we've always been taught. That's the way our schools are set up. That when we talk about learning, it's, it's knowledge. But he uses this fascinating phrase here, which says grow in grace. And when I was thinking about that, to me, that's very, very different than growing in knowledge. To, go, to grow in the, in the grace of God only way I can think about how you do that is by experience. That I have to put myself in a place where I understand the grace of God, how dependent I am on the grace of God. And it wasn't just on the day when I was saved and I started following Jesus, but now my whole life. I should live in a way that the only way that it could be explained as possible is by the grace of God. The only way she can do that is because of the grace of God. That was not humanly possible. He could have never survived that only by the grace of God. 
And I'm telling you, when we begin to live for Jesus, to advance his kingdom, to grow in grace, we have to put ourselves in a position to need it. We can't just do what we've always done to be comfortable. A life of following Jesus is stepping out one foot at a time in faith into a new place where you know the only way this works is if God shows up. That's faith. That's why I love preaching so much, because it reminds me on a weekly basis, I'm not smart enough to do this, and I definitely don't have the personality or the skill set to do this. Like some of you met me before I was a preacher. Some people that I grow up with, I'll see them at a gas station talking like, oh, what do you do now? I'm like, I'm a preacher. They're like, like you talk in front of people? I was quiet and backwards, maybe a little weird, not the best in front of people. So every time I come out, I pray and I cling to the cross because I know unless God's spirit is going with me, I got no business going. I know unless he doesn't lead me, I got no reason to be up there. I'm saying we should be living a life where that should be our prayer as we go into work. God, unless your grace follows me, I don't know how this is gonna work. God, unless your grace goes before me, I don't know how I can take this toxic work culture that I'm in and make it a wholesome one. God, unless your grace goes before me, I don't know how this conversation is gonna go. God, unless your grace goes before me, I have nothing to offer these kids in kids ministry. God, unless your grace goes before me, I have nothing to provide to this group. Like if you're a group leader, and you feel completely sufficient on what you bring to the table, I just think that now's the time to pause and to say, I don't want this to be another group. I don't want this to be a social outing. I don't want this to be a box that I check. I want it to be life changing. I want it to be something that I can't do on my own. I wanna look back and know, God, you sustained me. God, I didn't know that was there. God, I know that that was you. But that's a scary place to be but go and grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord. And what I want us to do is, is I wanna close this out with just finishing up in Daniel chapter eight. And maybe it's a different ending that you didn't, that you would have expected, but I love how realistic it is, which just makes me believe in the Bible even more. He says, then I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for several days. But afterward, I got up and performed my duties for the king. But I was greatly troubled by the vision and could not understand it. He just saw it all. He saw more than what we got here in chapter 8 for sure. And the evil that he saw, he couldn't capture into words. And he knew what was coming. He knew about the furnaces of the future. He knew about the lion's den. He knew about the Antichrist. And even though he knew in the end, God will prevail, his kingdom will reign, he still saw all of that and he was wrecked. And he took a moment. But then I love the language. He says, but then I got up and got about the king's business. And I wanna call all of us to stand right now, to get up at all of our campuses. Would you get up? And I know it can be heavy. I know it can be hard. You're fighting battles that I do not know about. But I just want you to know that where we stand 
the prophecies of Jesus are already, but not yet. Because he has come, he lived the life, he died the death, he resurrected. And now he has given me and you an opportunity to live out our faiths, not to wait, not to just hold tight, not to just bunker down. We don't bunker down. Hell bunkers down. It says that the gates of hell will not prevail. Gates are not an offensive weapon. People don't pick up the gate as they leave to go into battle. You put up a gate because you're afraid of what's coming on the outside. The devil, the kingdom, the antichrist, all of that is in fear of what God is bringing on the last days. Everything now is fear tactics. Everything now is trying to distract us from who God has called us to be. But I'm asking you and I'm charging you to stand, to be about your father's business, to be about the king's business, and to know that the storms will come, rain will fall, wind will blow, but Jesus said, if your life is built on me, on my body, on my blood, if that is the foundation, my teachings, come what may, nothing is gonna shake you. Nothing can tear you down. And so what I want us to do right now is pray, and then we're gonna worship. What our Father has given us is a picture of what heaven will be like, us with millions and millions and millions worshiping in complete harmony. We're going to get in on it a little bit early today, okay? So sing like you are singing from heaven. Sing like you are advancing God's kingdom. Sing like you are calling upon the very spirit of God to take you this week to places you've never been, to experience a love that you've never experienced, to give a love that you've never given before. And that is only by the grace of God. Would you pray with us? God, thank you. God, we thank you for this series. God, we thank you for Daniel, how you gave Daniel in a very unique time, a life that has been so inspiring that we can call on years and years later. And even with this prophecy, as we unravel what it is, God, there's so much hope there. And so God, I pray that we would not just put our heads down when we leave here, waiting. But God, I pray we would live a life hurrying on your kingdom, advancing your kingdom, sent out on search parties for your lost sons and daughters, going good and well where we know our humanly features, our brains, our bodies could never take us. God, we ask you to lead us to where we've never been, to experience more of you, more of your love, more of your grace, more of your hope, so that we can extend it to others. God, it is by your grace that we are saved. Jesus, it is by your grace that we will live. We love you. It is in your perfect and holy name we pray. Amen.